Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening to Sin Files Radio. I'm your host, Steve Pisa. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget, you can catch us now on iTunes. This is our eighth season. We've been on iTunes for quite a while, but we just we just kind of uh, changed the algorithm, brought ourselves back on there. Today we have the great Vernon Wells. I've had the pleasure of work with him before. I'm blessed to call him my friend. We did Mad Max, uh, Weird Science, Power Ranger movies, using Commando with Alyssa Milano and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. We're blessed to have him on the show today. We hit Friday, everybody. We finally made it. How is your Friday? I went shopping this morning at 7 o'clock in the morning. I think I've turned myself into an angry shopper. (laughs) When somebody stands too close, I get a little irritated. It kind of just freaks me out. I know we're we're all going to go back to normal sooner or later. We're all going to go back to shaking hands and kissing and hugging and and all those things, but still, it, it it flips me out. I'm walking down the street and walking by this one coffee shop that's very popular, and there's a litany of people just standing around together. And I just want, I just think to myself, please get out of my way, please, because I'm not going to get the coronavirus because you want to get your your cup of joe. I know I talked about this the other day, but it is a consistent thing. And some of them were laughing at me because I crossed the street. I don't want to stand next to you. <laughs> we only have a couple more months until this thing is nipped in the bud because people are are, are behaving properly. But I don't, I, you know, maybe I've been, I would have been different when I was 15 years old. I would have just went with it and just went, ah, forget it, you know. I want to be part of the group. I'm just not that way anymore. I guess I grew Let's not waste any more time. Let's let's get Vernon on in here. Vern. Hey, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thank you, Steve. How are you? Awesome. I'm doing very good. Now, before we get started, how are you and your wife doing during this lockdown right now? Are you guys doing okay? Uh, I had to hide all the guns and knives because, you know, it was getting... <laughs> uh, 
But apart from that, no, we're fine. We uh, we live in a pretty enclosed community down here at Pacific Palisades on the side of the the mountain, and oh, nice. um, we get we get to walk with the dogs every day, take them out through, and everybody's very very conscious of the um, six feet away, and every dog is on a six foot lead, so right. people stay <laughs> at the end of their lead, and you're at the end of yours, so you're about 12 feet away from each other. The dogs, right. of course, are carrying on like an idiot, but uh, <laughs> no, it's, so we get to sort of get out, and we've got the beach and the, the ocean, like just the waves, you can hear them, and you get the salt yeah. air coming up. It's it's really really nice. They've closed the beach down, which is really cool. There were right. so many people on that beach. Oh my! Like you you were talking about your coffee shop. Yeah, there had to be probably three thousand people on the beach, and now we're right. just like side by side. And you go, oh God, doesn't anybody get it? <laughs> I don't think they did. I, I live near the Santa Monica Pier, and and. I saw hundreds of people just lambing out there in, in, in the, the sand. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, the, the sun yeah. is not going to get rid of this coronavirus. Nope. And it's, you know, we're, we're starting to win the game, but, you know, we can't relax just because, right. you know, it's, it's like one of those things. It's a, it's a four-quarter game, this, you know, and we've done three quarters. We can't relax and let them come back and win in the fourth quarter. We've got to keep going, keep pushing. Oh, you're, you're um, right. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think we secluded ourselves for this long just, to be, just for it to come back and nip us in the bud. Yep, I'm in total agreement, my friend. <laughs> so, you know, this is our eighth season. We're, we're blessed to have you on for our first season and have us on our show. But I, I, I do want to kind of retread some, some areas of, of your career, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, the one, one thing I, no. I definitely want to, <laughs> well, definitely one of the things I want to talk about is, you know, you, you came over to America in a time where right now there's a lot of Australian stars, Chris Hemsworth, Margot Robbie, a lot of people over here right now, but you came over here at a time where it was not popular. Uh, Australia was not full of the, of the film industry and what have you. What what was it about the film industry and what have you that that kept made your blood boil to to, to want to do it and what have you while you're in Oz? Uh, while I was in Oz, um, you know, strangely enough, while I was in Oz, I had no intentions of ever being an actor. It was uh, really far far beyond anything that I really was interested in doing. I love being behind the camera. Um, the excitement to me was was directing and producing and you know putting it together and wow and being able to watch it come together. Being in front of the camera was 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 uh, paramount to trying to get me to 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 shoot someone. I, I was terrified. <laughs> you know, I just didn't do it. It was, it was so hard for me. It's incredible to hear that, you know, you being such an iconic character, a lot of us just grew up watching you and being just in awe of you uh, to hear you say that, that you didn't want to be an actor and what have you. It, that, that's, that's really shocking. What, what were the first moves that happened to get you in front of the camera? Um, well, my, I grew up on a farm, as you probably remember, I grew up with my grandparents and, uh, my mother yeah. was a uh, single mother and then she remarried. 
much later on. But um, I uh, grew up with my grandparents and my single mother. And uh, so I was a farm boy, you know, uh, hmm. riding horses, chasing cattle, uh, right. sheep dipped, you know, shearing sheep, uh, loading hay, you know, doing the whole plowing paddocks, that whole thing. That was that was kind of where I was. But my mother was a very successful songwriter. She'd written songs for Slim Dusty and uh, other yeah. Australian singers. And uh, I kind of followed in her footsteps in the fact that I, I enjoyed singing and I enjoyed uh, that kind of thing. So right. that was where I saw myself. I was with a couple of big bands and um, I was having a lot of fun and, you know, the old saying, sex, drugs and rock and roll and right. you know, <laughs> that, that whole big, wonderful thing. Um, right. And I, I, I saw myself there. I, I didn't see myself moving until I got involved in a very serious accident trying to avoid um, hitting a car with four kids in it. Um, I actually wow. put myself into a hell of a lot of danger and... Um, got badly hurt in the process, uh, got right. my back fractured in three places. So I couldn't work with the band. I was kind of sidelined. And wow. as I got better and things started to improve, I became a total pain in the ass t- to our manager, to Bobby, right. who uh, went out and started to take my picture and beg every casting agent in Melbourne <laughs> where I uh, lived please take me and put me in something, you know. And uh, eventually this lady said, look, we're casting a series of of cigarette commercials, uh, which will probably never go to air because it's basically the uh, write-off for the the tax. But Mm -hmm. if he's interested in coming in to see us, we'd love to see him. So I went in, saw them, and, of course, I could do everything they wanted. I could ride horses. I could drive cars. I could do everything. And right. um, they said, you know, you're a pretty good looking kid and, you know, you'll do. So <laughs> I got to travel from Australia to Southeast Asia, you know, uh, to to um, different places shooting these commercials, uh, which I did. Oh. And I got paid. To me, I got paid a lot of money. But today I right. got, probably got paid virtually nothing. But right. <laughs> I didn't have to share it. I was getting it all to myself. There wasn't four other guys saying, gimme, gimme. So I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I'll do this. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, I got as bored as, as you can tell, you know, like right. being told smile, you know, look glum, you know, look fierce. Right. It was kind of like, good God, this is so bad. And so I, I, I quit. Walked away right. from it, didn't want to do it. And um, so Bobby went back to the agent and said, look, is there anything you can do with him? And she said, well, we could throw him into some television shows as an extra. Well, you know, I'm right. sure he's not an actor. So we could get him some extra parts. So virtually I started being an extra and with no intention of being an actor. In fact, right. I, I was so happy to be an extra sitting um, and back in those days, if you were in a restaurant doing a restaurant scene, you actually had restaurant food, so you ate. Right. So you, you, yeah. know, you were getting nice food to eat, and you could drink wine, which was real wine, and you know. So this was this was where I liked this. This was fun. Right. And uh, and the problem was, directors would keep spotting me and going, "Hey, you, you, yeah, yeah, big tall guy, come here." 
and they'd sort of bring me up and say, this is what we want you to say when, you know, you walk in and say this. And, and I would be like, uh, no, I don't think so. You know, I, I really don't want to. And they'd say, no, we're not asking you. We're telling you. We want you to right. come through the door and say these words. And it was really difficult for me. In fact, my mother, God bless her soul, when she was alive, kept some of the tapes. And you could actually see me counting beats to, <laughs> to do some of these things like, you know, Step to three, pick up glass to three, drink right. to three. You know, all of the and it's so hysterical to watch because it's so bad, and it was just I just didn't want to do it, hated it, and right. so I would drift behind the camera all the time. I I loved, I loved the idea of of what those people did, and. Right. Um, it fascinated me. And then a, a, a gentleman that I worked with a few times, his name was George Miller as well, but not George Miller. Who not the other George Miller. Yeah. The other George Miller. And he was doing commercials and he, he hired me to uh, work in his company as his um, producer, basically. And right. I thought, oh, this is cool. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going from being a, um, a dickhead to being a producer. You know, this is great. I right. love it. His idea right. of being a producer was sweeping the floors and learning everything. You know, you, you started right. at the bottom and you worked your way up. And eventually right. I worked my way up to be old producing. School. Yep, old school. And I virtually worked my way through every department, you know, um, through camera through lighting, through props, through wardrobe, mm. through everything until I got to the point of where I was actually producing very large commercials, very right. big commercials. And um, then one night he just, we had a very hard client to work with. This old gentleman, he was like in his late 80s. He was a football hero uh, from way back, but very cantankerous old man. And nobody wanted to direct this commercial. It was like, you know, nobody wanted to do it. And he sort of walked past my office and said, hey, Vern, i got a job for you tomorrow. And I said, yeah, what's that? He said, you're directing the commercial. And I said, oh, goody. Oh, and nice. Course, as he walked, it, it, it dawned on me that what he had said. And I went, what? I'm directing the, oh, shit. And so <laughs> I was totally mortified at this whole thing because I knew his reputation. So, and it was a very, very intricate commercial. It was one shot. This whole commercial was one shot of the camera being up, coming down on a crane onto a mm. dolly, moving into a shop, like a big store, and he was walking in front of the camera. Right. And the camera was going backwards into the shop. He was delivering dialogue till he got in front of the shop, and then he was in front of a whole wall of like 300 televisions, which all had his image on them doing what he was doing to the camera. And so it was very intricate. One, one shot. And, um, I, now I this like, is your, uh, this is your first directing job. My first directing job. That's and insane. I was like, this is never going to work. Um, so I was on location with my crew, mind you at five o'clock in the morning rehearsing. And they hated me. And I was like, nope, we're going to get this to And we rehearsed until 10 o'clock when he arrived. And we had run it through about 400 times. I mean, man, wow. we had rehearsed that thing to death. 
And he came on and it just went like clockwork. The camera came down from the sun rising down, turned onto the dolly. He was he was walking, he was delivering dialogue into the, the, the store and uh, through into where the, the TVs were. All the TVs came on as he entered the room right. with everything that was happening and finished the, the commercial and it was like, cut, print, thank you. And he walked over to me and he just looked at me and he went, you're going to make a good, good director one day, son. Keep it up. And I thought, wow. Wow. I'm 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 going to become the next Steven Spielberg. Before. I mean, dear God, um, and that was basically it. Uh, and I started directing commercials and little movies, and I loved it. That was where I saw myself, and it was my career. Right. And then some somebody had this bright idea of putting me in a stage play, of which I said no about a thousand times. In fact, I left Australia to get away from it. I was so hmm didn't want to do it and eventually I had to come back and um, my brother was the one that told me you know that I should do it but it was what was scaring me more than anything it's a, it's a stage play called Hosanna which was re- written by Michelle Tremblay who's a very famous uh, Canadian playwright yeah. and yeah. was about transvestite and her boyfriend there's only two people in the whole play just a transvestite and the boyfriend and I was to right. be the boyfriend and of course, this is where the country boy crap cuts in, you know, like <clears throat> macho, oh, excuse me, macho boy, you know, wrestles cows and, and, and rides horses. And, right. You know, going to be a gay. Yeah, right. That isn't going to happen. <laughs> so it was this whole big thing. No way I was going to do it. And then eventually my brother sort of just looked at me and said, you know, stop acting like a little puff and go do your job. Um, right. And it just sort of made me wake up and I went and did it. Right. A very, very difficult play for me. I mean, extraordinarily, with it being the first major thing I'd ever done in my life. Um, very, very difficult, but it worked and it right. became this rolling success. And George Miller, um, his girlfriend, Sandy Gore, saw a performance and rang George and said, you've got to come see this guy. Um, he's perfect for the film. You know, he's who you're looking for. And um, George never actually came and saw me performing. He came oh. down to Melbourne. We went out. We had a cup of coffee. We told silly jokes to each other. And he left. Right. And I had no idea why he was there. I actually had no idea who he was. And right. I rang my agent and I said, well, I saw this George Miller you wanted me to have coffee with, but what's it all about? Who is he? And they said, well, he directed uh, Mad Max. And right. I said, Mad Max, what's that? And they said, you've <laughs> never seen Mad Max? And I said, no. And right. they said, um, I'd go and see Mad Max because they want you to do the sequel, uh, Road Warrior. And I right. went, what? Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing this stage. But when it's over, that's it. You know, my five minutes of fame, I'm, I'm gone. I'm out of here. I'm back to directing. I said, yeah, right. go watch the movie. So I actually happened to see it as a double header. It was um, Mad Max and Duel, and I liked Duel better. Actually, <laughs> I was like, oh, now there's a movie. Duel is a great and film. Kind of, yeah, and it was kind of this stupid thing, and then. 
um, that was basically it. Uh, I went back to directing and, and I was happy and I'd forgotten right. all about it. And then I agent rang me and said, you've got to fly to Sydney for wardrobe and makeup tests. I was like, what? For what? And they said, for the sequel to Mad Max, Mad Max 2. And I went, I'm not doing Mad Max 2. And I went, well, according to uh, George Miller, you are. And so... <laughs> I, I went, no, 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 no. And they said, well, look, there's a ticket for you. You've got to go. So I flew up to right. Sydney and um, I was like terrified to be blunt. And right. um, they shaved my head because they wanted to look, see what the, the mohawk would look like and, and the, the, all of the makeup in it and the makeup and the costuming. And I had to go. And a couple of times I said to George, I, I can't do this. You know, I really, I'm, I'm not, I, I really can't do this. And he was like, uh, and George Miller's wonderful. I love George above all people except for my wife. He's one of the people that I love so much. His, <laughs> his whole thing is when you say no to him about anything, he just goes, without looking at you, he's busy doing it. He goes, yeah, uh-huh, and just keeps on going. It takes no notice of what you said. So we went through this whole thing of me trying on costumes, having arguments about having no back in the in the pants and, and wanting to have something cover my ass and eventually I got the uh, the butt flap and then we were having problems with the costume because I move around so much it was actually cutting into my neck so they put sheep uh, sheep skin on it to soften it and then that looked really gay um, and uh, Miss Mercury, our uh, costume designer, God bless her soul, she came up with all the feathers. And so they put really the whole feather headdress because I loved Indians. And, you know, I was, I was really like, yay, I get to play an Indian. And so it had virtually <laughs> a headdress around the, the shoulders of the shoulder pad, right. which is what made that costume work. I right. mean, it was just amazing. And so against all odds and being um, a newbie, having never done a film in my life, having been an extra and a bit player on four or five television shows and um, doing a stage play, I pulled off being the lead in probably the biggest film of that time. Yeah. Um, Mad Max, right? Uh, the Road Warrior, right. and uh, that's how it all all uh, started. And it was um, to me, it was the most exhilarating, amazing time of my life, and it was the most terrifying, soul destroying time of my life because I was so really? petrified that I would screw up so all the time. And Mel right. Gibson was just the most amazing person to work with because he was my cheering squad, just all by himself. And really? He, every time I did, he would come over and say, that's, that, you know, you're, you're doing wonderful, you know, you're great, you know. And it was right. just, it kept me moving forward. Um, that's really, that's really beautiful and humble. Yeah, that was really, really wonderful. And he was just so... And everybody else in the cast, a, a lot of those people were were established actors. You know, right. a big lot of them from... Sure. Um, all kinds of either stage or television or film. I mean, we had some very established people in that cast. And then you had me. 
and they were all really, really nice and really, really um, supportive. And right. the thing that I always remember about that film was that everybody wanted to be there, from the lowest member of the crew to the highest member of the cast, wanted to be on that set doing that film. Right. And that was where the camaraderie came from. Everybody worked together. Everybody was, you know, doing their thing. I always remember that they had this saying that they called me barometer bum, that every time the chicks <laughs> got a little bit purple from the cold, they ran me into right. they ran me and Mel into a, a a warm trailer so we could warm up because it was right. freezing, absolutely <laughs> freezing. Really? I, I thought it would have been burning hot. It looks like it's incredibly hot on that set. Yeah, everybody, everybody thinks that. It's so funny because um, it was so bad that everything that was metal, you stuck to if you touched it. And I had this... Uh, Get out of here. Of being able to grab everything that was metal and stick to it and, and go, oh, crap. And the... <laughs> The first time I did, I just pulled my hand away and ripped all the skin off my hand and it was bleeding. And then the, the, the effects guys went, you don't do that. If you stick to something, yell, we'll come over with water, we'll get you off it. And then eventually they went, you know what, just pull your freaking hand off. You're becoming such a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> did I stuck to everything. It was just like so ridiculous. But I never got it in my head that don't touch the bloody iron shit, Vernon. It was just so funny. But, uh, yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I did a lot of the stunts in it uh, because I'm just, I was that kind of guy, you know. I right. wanted to do it. If, if, if I had something and I thought I could do it, I wanted and George would have them tie me down, you know, like tie him up right. for God's sake. We can't risk his life. Um, and I was, I was a bit of a, um, a scare to everybody, but it was, you know, from that point of view, I had so much fun, but from the other point of view within me, my soul and who I was and what I was doing, I was terrified every day of that film that I would screw up. and, And I had this insane vision of this film resting on, on things that I did. And then I, screwed up and, and the film was, was screwed. Right. And, you know, all this money had been wasted. And, and it just you know, I'll be, I'll be honest with, I'll be honest with you. You know, I don't, I don't think you're halfway wrong. You're Im- the imagery in that film really is between Mel Gibson and, and your character as Wes. It, it's, it's palpable. And you're the two characters that stand out the most. If, if you would not have been that tumultuous in that film, I, I think the film would not have been that good. Yeah, it, it, what, what I was, it was funny because um, I was in, I was invited to uh, Japan, Japan, Japan. My yeah. wife will kick my ass. <laughs> um, I, I was invited to Japan for the opening of Fury Road, and George right. was there, and there was some of the cast from the original Mad Max, and there was me from Road Warrior. So. Right. Uh, we were all, they played all the films one after the other, you know, the first two. And then there was no one from the third one, which I'm not even sure that they played. Thunderdome, anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. They played the two Mad Maxes 
and then they they did a they did the opening. It was the big opening for Fury Road, and uh, George was there, and we we're doing a. And this is I just tell you a little story of, of what George is like. He's just such sure. an amazing, amazing man. And so human, you know, like he, he hasn't got that. I'm George Miller. I've made, you know, 55 right. billion, uh, 55 <laughs> films and a billion dollars in money. You know, he's, he's George. Right. And uh, he adores Grace and Grace adores him. And we were in Japan and they had sort of said, George may come to the question and answer. We're not sure he could, maybe not. And we're all standing. There's about probably 10 of us on stage and um, someone in the audience says, Mr. Wells, could you tell us how your costume came about? Did you have any say in it? And I said, well, and that's all I got out. I went, well, and this voice behind me, when he had nothing to do with it, I did it. And it was George Miller standing behind me. And I turned around and I went, oh, my God. And uh, he just walked along the line of all the people that had been in the in the original Mad Max gave everybody a hug, chatted to everybody along. Came back down, ignored me. Um, went and, and he came up to me eventually and gave me a big hug. And I said, uh, George, if somebody wants to say hello, and he turned and Grace was in the front row and she was waving to him, and he went, "Oh my God!" And he walked down off the stage, across to Grace. Picked her wow. up out of her chair in this bear hug, spun her around and just like stood there talking to her for probably 10 minutes. And then she sat down, he came back up on stage and we continued. That's incredible. And I went, there are a few people on this planet that have that much gentlemanly attitude about them to say, this I love this lady and I'm going to go talk to her. I don't care. It's the opening of my movie. Right. And um, he's just one of those wonderful, wonderful people that he gets. He he gets you to do things because he understands who you are, right. and he understands that if he talks to you like a human being you will react like one and you'll do what is necessary. And that was how we made the film work. Right. And uh, I was chatting to him at dinner and um, after the, the screening of um, Fury Road. Right. And I said, George, you know, it always amused me that you chose me for Wes because after the success of Mad Max, the original, you could have chosen anybody you could have gone to america to england anywhere and got an actor mm. an established actor with a major name would have killed to do that role in that right. film with you and he went i know and i said <laughs> then why did you, yeah why, why would you pick me you know i was nobody right. i wasn't nobody and he said well let me think he said what i needed was three things i needed somebody that if you're walking down a dark alley and he suddenly stepped out of a doorway, you would panic, turn around and run screaming in the other direction. And mm. I went, uh-huh. And he mm. said, and secondly, I needed somebody who would, if I said, I need you to jump off that building, would say, okay, no problems. Uh, when? Because you, I didn't need somebody that had been in the business, was jaded by right. everything that would keep asking, why, how, why. I needed someone that would do. 
And, right. uh, and he said, that's what you were. And I said, okay. And he said, and the third one was, I needed a character that when he was dressed and looked, that every woman that looked at his face went, oh, my God. I would, excuse the French, I would fuck him to death in that costume. <laughs> and I went, um, well, you got the first two. Um, sorry about the third. <laughs> um, but that was his whole reasoning behind hiring me, believe it or not. Right. That he needed someone that had that sex appeal, that whole thing that, that women got in. Because he, as he said to me, we were talking about it, and he said, it's not just a male movie. It had to have that female audience as well that came in and wanted to see it because 90% of your audience gets drugged to the movie by their girlfriends and wives. Right, right. And unless they have reason for going, they're not going to go. Right. Um, well, that's oh, really okay. bright. So, yeah. Yeah, so he, he's a very, very intuitive, intuitive human being and a wonderful, right. wonderful man. I mean, I always credit him with launching my career. He always credits me with launching my career because he gave me 21 lines and I made it into a movie. Um, right. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's just, yeah, I, I'm forever eternally grateful to him. But strangely enough, uh, when I finished Mad Max, I went back to directing because that to me was the end of it. Um, right. Unfortunately for people, it wasn't. Um, Joel Silver decided that I had to do uh, Weird Science, and right. that took a lot of uh, persuasion. And there was no way I was going to go to America. Um, on the, all the lists of everything I never wanted to do, was come to America. Now, why is that? Believe it. I just it, it didn't intrigue me. It's strange. It's that Australian thing. I just wow. wasn't intrigued by coming to America. It's like, yeah, well, wow. why, why? Yeah, I'm happy we're doing what I'm doing. Right. Um, and eventually, of course, I was brought over here, and I had to get a uh, work permit. Guess <laughs> who signed my work permit with with the uh, INS and with SAG? Who? Mel Gibson. Get out of here. Yep. That is amazing. Yep, Mel signed my entry and my work visa with SAG. Wow. So uh, what a, what a humble always, human being. That's that's incredible that he really put himself out there for you. Yep, and he was just I I have nothing bad to say about him. People always say to me, "Oh yeah," but and I go, "Look, you know what? Yeah, I don't know anything about that. I cannot comment on it because I don't right. know about it. All I can comment on is what." I have from my own experience with him and my own experience with Mel Gibson right. is nothing but pleasurable. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be completely you know, honest with you, Vern. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put somebody down for, for going through the worst period of their lives. It doesn't identify them for the rest of their existence. Cause if that were, if that were so, all of us are going to be screwed. I always say to, to, to people when I'm talking to them, you know, you want a comfort ride in my car on the freeway at uh, nine o'clock in the morning and see the actual Vernon Wells? Right. It's it's like, you know, we all have that other side that when we're we pushed, we we explode. We, yeah. we say things. My wife can tell you what I'm like. Right. Um, but it, and we've all gone never, through very difficult times. We've all gone through yeah. really hard times. 
and we can't be judged by it. We we have no. to be judged by the things we do that help, not by the things we do that hinder. Um, right. Because we all have that problem at some stage or another. And to me, Mel was a wonderful person who helped me immensely while I was filming, helped me immensely to come into this country, get my work right. permit. And I have nothing but thankfulness and gratitude to him for doing it. Right. And, um, and the funny thing is, is I really haven't met him once since I moved to America. And it was at a screening of uh, Apocalypto. And uh, I got drug up on stage, which I really didn't nice. want to do because it might interfere. And I got drug up on stage when he was shaking hands with people. And he, he, they said, hey, oh, you know, Mel, Mel, someone here wants to say hi. And he turned around and it was me. And he kind of walked over and he just stood there and he looked at me. And I, I, I was sort of, I didn't know what to do, whether I should right. shake his hand or give him a hug. So I gave him a hug. And he sort of <laughs> hugged me, and, and then he stepped back and he looked up at me, and he went, hmm, "Still a big shit, aren't you?" And I went, <laughs> yep. and "That was basically it. That was the whole conversation." Yeah, and, you know, because he hates crowds. Uh, he does not do well in crowds. Right. No, he does not like crowds. And, nope. He just wanted to get away, and so I appreciate that. But I have friends who know him and see him. Yeah. Uh, which, and they always say, you know, Mel always speaks highly of you and always says to say hi. And uh, I say, you know, what I would, you know, if ever he threw an offer at me, I would be crawling over broken glass to work with him. Right. I just have that much, you know, feeling yeah. for the guy. And I think he's a brilliant actor, a brilliant director. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, Br- it's just a wonderful, a wonderful director, a wonderful director. Yeah, so, you know, you just, you got to look at the positives, forget, you know, yeah. I think this, the thing that's coming out of this, this uh, coronavirus is that we are realizing that there are positives we have to look at and not. I agree with you. We're all, be- I, yes. we're all beginning to realize that the positives that are out there are what we need to cling to, not the bullshit, right. not the. Oh, I don't like him because, you know, he said this. Right. It's, right. it's just like we've got to learn to not do that. We've got to learn right. to look at people and go, you know what? You've done nothing to me that is bothersome. Right. So I can't. Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson didn't do anything to anybody. He did it to himself. You know, if yep. you want to sit down and blame the guy for, for, trying to hurt his own career. I mean, that's, that's pretty horrible. And I've been telling the audience this for the past couple of weeks since we've been in the close is that this is a time for introspection, love and forgiveness. And that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. We just got to understand that, you know, and I always, every day that I get up when people say to me, you know, like, are, you, are you still making movies? Am I still making movies? Of course, I'm still <laughs> making movies. Of course. Right at the moment. No. Um, but, yeah. um, and I'm back directing. So, you know, I'm directing and I'm, I'm working in front of the camera and I'm having a ball. And the, the thing is that I feel blessed every day that I get out of bed and I have a call time to be at a set, wherever that set is to work, whether I'm directing, producing, or acting. I feel right. so blessed to be able to do that because this is what my life is all about. 
This right. is a career I didn't know I had until I got forced by circumstance to accept right. it. My grandfather always used to say to me, um, "There's a, you know, when you're born, there's a path laid out for you, and that's the path you will either follow or you won't. And if right. you're destined to follow that path, no matter what you do, you will always be brought back to it. You will right. veer off and do whatever, but then eventually you'll come back to that same thing, and which is true. There have been many right. times when I've taken a left turn, when I should have taken a right, and I have gone off into the wilderness for a while doing dumb shit, and then right. something has brought me back, and I'm back on the path doing what I'm supposed to do. So eventually you get to the point where you go, okay, I'm going to stop fighting this. I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to let it go. Right. Let it lead me wherever it leads me, and that's the end of it. And it just makes me so much happier, and I'm blessed. You know, I work with like right. people like you, and yeah. and uh, all the, the the wonderful people that I worked with in the the right. two films that we've done. You know, Vern. Um, you know, I I wrote for you, and and you were the first person that that first star in my mind because you're you were gigantic star for me growing up, and, and now. When I wrote for you, it was so easy to write for you. And when you did the part, you did it in your in the way that you wanted to do it. And when we were talking outside of the theater, you gave me the character analytics of how you thought the character was and what you believed. And I was blown away. I was blown away by by the way you perceived the character. I, I want to hear I want to hear that understanding of the character analytics of how you understand the character, how you read the character and how you build on that character for yourself. It's, it's actually interesting. I can tell you a little story about that. The sure. a gentleman that I'm partners with, uh, who uh, is, uh, we have a studio complex up in Sacramento and um, we're, we're partners on a lot of films and uh, a lot of stuff that we're doing. Um, I'm directing. We've got a series that we're trying to put together and so on and so on. And the first thing that uh, he ever asked me to do was because somebody on the set, they were looking for a character for this role, which was kind of like the, 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 the truth giver of the film. You know, he was the one right. who, who told the truth. He was the one that understood what was going on. And he was a bar a guy that owned a bar. So everybody came into that bar and he was the one that knew what was going on. And, and that was where he got the, the whole thing from. So he, uh, was, he was looking for someone to play the role, couldn't find anybody he liked. And um, uh, one of the people on the set, it was, I think, I believe one of the, the crew said to him, a friend of mine, Vernon Wells, um, you know, he right. might suit you. And, and Vernon Wells, Vernon Wells, and he said, you know, look at him, he brought him up, and he went, oh, shit, he would be wonderful, but I, we could never get him. We couldn't afford him, number one. But um, Right. And so, uh, and uh, uh, he rang me, Brian, gave me a call, and he said, you know, I'm doing this film, blah, blah, blah. His name's Brian Martin, and uh, he's a wonderful uh, writer, and uh, he uh, me and said, I'm doing this film and there's this part in it where we can't really afford you, but we could pay you for one night for 12 hours straight in which we can shoot everything 
that's required of you in the film if you're willing to do it. And I said, sure. <laughs> you know, send me the script. Right. Let me read it. I'll tell right. you what I think. So he sent me the script, and I loved it. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. So they right. they um, set everything up and flew me up to Sacramento, and he picked me up at the airport. And I said, oh, I must be a big star. I'm being picked up by the writer <laughs> uh, director. And um, he said, yeah, he said, no, actually, you know, we're working tonight. We're going to, you know, let you rest this afternoon and then we'll pick you up. He said, but I thought if I drove you to the hotel, I could talk to you about the character and fill you in on what I see and how I think. Right. And that way we can, we can um, cut the time down. And I said, yeah, okay. I said, you know what, Brian, how about I tell you what I think? And... <laughs> <laughs> then you tell me whether I've screwed up, right, and right. we come together on on that, and that'll save us a hell of a lot of time. Anyway, right. okay, fine. So, you know, for like like I did to you for about twenty minutes, I just told him everything I thought of the character and how I thought and why and where and how and the whole bit. And then I finished, and I sort of said, "So where did I screw up?" And he just he driving, he just turned slightly from the steering wheel, and once again, sorry for the language, he uh, turned slightly from the steering wheel, looked over at me, and he went, "Fuck you," and just kept driving. <laughs> and to this day, he says to people, he is the first person I've ever worked with who knew more about the character than I did, and I wrote. It, 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 it is it is it is frightening how how you can pick apart a script. And read the character so well. I wrote the character for you for for the film, and, and you you read it so well, and you understood the character so well. I thought you were like literally reading my mind. It wasn't. It was insane. I've never met anybody who could do that. I I just you know it's one of those things. Now I'm not you know to be blunt. I have no idea how I do it. Um, right. What I do is is I will read a script. I, I, I do what I call I gloss over a script. I will read the script, but I read it without without trying to sort out anything that's going on in the script. I will read it as um, a play from start to finish. What happens? All right, all these things happen. Okay, then I'll go back and I'll read my character. Mm-hmm. I'll read my character in every, I'll go back and find every scene I'm in, mark all the scenes, and I'll take all the other stuff of the script out. Now I'll read my character because that's all I can read. It's there. I'll read his interaction with people within the boundaries of where I am. And so from that, what I start to do is I started to develop, okay, if this was me, I would be doing this or I'd be doing that. Now this character right. has these things that are happening. Okay, he cannot be one-dimensional. He has to have reasons. He has to have a family. He has to have something inside him. I don't care if he is the worst, monstrous, suicidal, homicidal, necrophiliac on God's earth. Right. There is still something inside his soul that is alive and beating and human. And I have to find that. And that's mm-hmm. what I look for. I look for that pebble. And I go in and I dig through the crap and I dig through the shit and I get down and I go, ah, here it is. This is what right. this man is. This is who he is. This is where he comes from. 
Now, I can then start to layer it like a layer cake. I then start to put layers of who the script describes him as and who he is within the script and within the boundaries of where he's playing. And then finally, when I've finished, after I've read read the character a few times, I've built this whole character from the ground up. I've built him from this little pebble of of humanity that's within his soul, I have built out from that. And then I have built this character. And now I know exactly how he interacts with everybody, exactly who he is, exactly why he does it. But underneath it all, there is still that humanity. There is still that little bit of something that always shines through. That people always comment on when I'm doing uh, questions and answers, they say, no matter how bad the character is that you do, in your eyes, there's always a twinkle at times or there's this dead, cold attitude, but there's always something going on. It's never just the way the character is. There's always something behind it that you can see. And that's what I try to do. That's how I try to look at it. I try to find the genesis of what you've written, because even if you don't realize it, somewhere in what you've written, you've written the genesis of who this person is. Right. And I look for it, and we'll dig for it, and I'll find it. And once right. I find it, then I can work backwards. And I always work backwards. Right. And I then feel the character. And as you're probably aware, I don't take a lot of notice of, of, of stage direction in scripts, because to me, the actions, reactions, and emotions of the character come within the framework of what's happening with the rest of the characters in that scene. Right. Or it's on his own. There is a point of, of where something has triggered the emotion. Not because you've written, he cries, tears stain the table. No. It happens when it happens because there is a reason for it happening. And that reason isn't manufactured. That reason is the reality of the situation working on this character or this human being on his soul or his heart or wherever it's working. And it draws forth that that particular emotion. And I think that, out of all the things I do, is why I and so successful of making it work. Right. I can find where that comes from, and I can make it work within the framework of what I'm doing. Let and, me ask uh, you, when you're working as a director, you, you have to work on several characters. Are, are you able to do the same thing while you're directing yeah. a film and you have several characters? Are you able to empathize and, and do the same character analytics while you're directing a film? I do it with the carrot with the the actors. Wow! I, I I was actually doing a I was directing a little thing which was a, a sex scene um, just before we had this shutdown, this big close down with uh, the coronavirus, and one of the actors was very promiscuous. The girl, she was very like upfront, like you know, oh I don't care, I'm really, and the guy was terrified. But her promiscuity was a cover for the fact that she was scared shitless. And so what I did was we shot it a couple, and it didn't work. 
it just didn't work. So I said, okay, look, this is what it's all about, guys. And I sat them both down and I talked to them. And right. I said, sweetheart, no one needs to see your breasts. No one needs to see your front parts. What we right. need to see is someone who is desperate to get laid by this man. Hmm. That's what we need to see. We need to see it in your eyes. We need to see it in your face. We need to see it in every part of your body. That's what I need. And you, right. and I said to the guy, I said, what you're doing is you're trying to act this macho guy who's going to lay this woman. Doesn't work. Not many macho guys get laid. So just remember, you get laid because you empathize with the character, with the person in front of you. I need you to understand who she is and what her problems are and why she's doing this. Yes, she is your friend, your best friend's girlfriend. I want to see that in your face. I want to know that you're torn between screwing her and cheating on your best friend. And you know what? We got the most brilliant tapes. They were just so good. And everybody cheered and clapped. And it was because they suddenly understood that they had to stop acting. And right. to me, when I'm directing with people, I say, stop acting. Right. Just be. Stop mm. acting. Don't need to be out there acting. When you act, it's obvious. Be. Just and you never and, and you never took acting classes like under Meisner or anything like that. This is just something that you developed through time. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I did one <laughs> set of classes and walked away from it and went, you know, failed actors become coaches. Isn't that the name? <laughs> and it's like someone who can't do it's trying to make me do it. Right. And I'm thinking, it doesn't work for you. Why will it work for me? Right. And that was my attitude, right or wrong. Now, you know, Meisner would probably crawl up from his grave and come and kick me to death over saying something like that. <laughs> There's probably a lot of acting coaches who would want me stoned right. for saying that. But to me, that's what it's all about. Acting coaches try to mold you in their image. Which right. That is true. I agree with. Because everybody's different. Everybody has their own um, way. I mean, we all have our own successes and our own failures. And those are, that's what we have to bring with us. We don't need someone telling us, forget all that shit. Just, just right. get away from because that's what builds, you know, I always say to people, I am the greatest voyeur, and you've probably, I've probably said it to you. I'm the greatest voyeur there is. I watch everybody. Right. I watch reactions between people. I watch how people associate with each other, the little mannerisms they have. And where I got that one from was when I did Hosanna. I was, as I said, I just didn't uh. want to do it because it's playing two gays. Right. And I was talking to the director and I said, you know, that I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a straight guy. You know, how the hell do I do this? And he said, okay, Act. what you going to do is I'm going to take you to some gay bars and let you watch gay people. And I was like, oh, right. no, you're not. You know, it was like the last thing on this planet was Macho Vernon Wells going to a gay bar. Right. Um, but he took me to some gay bars and what struck me 
so hard between the eyes. 60 to 70% of these people were normal, average people. They were truck drivers, policemen. There were guys that worked on the docks. And I'm looking at these people thinking, oh, my God, they're just like me. Right. (laughs) And, And that's what struck me so profoundly, that I had categorized these people into this, this, oh, they do this or they do right. that. Never had I categorized them as human beings. And right. then suddenly it hit me between the eyes. And that stuck with me all my life is that we, we have to try to find under the bullshit what the person is if you're acting it. And then right. you become that character and you play it. You don't act it. You can't act a character. I always like to tell my classes, if I'm teaching, you know, is that a director's job is to give you the furniture to go into a box, a square box. Mm-hmm. And your job is to put that furniture in the square box. And then it's my job to tell you, you know what, the door should be on the other wall and the window should be smaller. That's how simple it is. There is no huge, wondrous thing about acting and what we do that should be kept under lock and key and only the great poobah can go into the the holy chamber and open the book. (laughs) You know, we're all actors. Minute you're born, you're an actor. You come through the womb acting. You want something right. when you're a baby, what do you do? You throw a tantrum, you kick, you scream. The minute you got it, what happened? Oh, you're giggling, right. you're happy. You weren't upset, you were acting. And we do that. But some of us lose that ability. It's either beaten out of us by our peers saying, don't be such an idiot, or our parents right. saying, stop acting the fool. And so we gradually go away from it to become like them, to right. become the way we perceive how we should be. Whereas a lot of us don't, we continue to follow this acting path and we begin to understand what human nature is. And that Hmm. no matter who we are underneath all of the layers that we have, there's an actor. There's a genuine little person in the middle of all of that begging to be able to go outside and play around in the mud like his six-year-old son. Right. And that's what we forget. We all <laughs> have that. And that's where you, I get all my... That's how I look at all my characters. I work backwards from this whole thing, and I put it together. I mean, Grace gets so perturbed with me at times because she wants to help me, God bless her. And she's <laughs> always saying, I'll the lines with you. And I'm always like, no, sweetie, it's fine. I I don't need you to read the lines. It's not because I don't want her to read the lines with me. Right. It's because when she starts reading the lines with me, I start to react to her. Hmm. Because what I'm trying to do is characterize what she's doing. Right. So now what I'm is I'm taking away from what I am actually trying to accomplish. So rather than do that and rather than get frustrated with myself and get angry about dumb shit, I would much prefer to say, no, I'll do it on my own because then the only person I'm relying on to do this is me and I can 
perceive the character how I see it. And the, hmm. the wonderful thing about that is, is when you walk on the set, you have no fucking idea what the people you're going to work with are going to do. Right. But you have got all these, these open avenues of where you can go to work with them. You have no perceived ideas. You have no definite. You have nothing that says, this is what this person's going to do. You just have to walk in there and watch what they do and then right. react to that, work with it. And that's where it all comes from. And that's why it works. And, you know, you can see it standing out if you have two people who are supposed to be in love and they don't like each other. It's right. obvious because they're acting and then they can't handle it. They don't want to be around the other person. Whereas if you don't give a shit, I don't like you, but you know what? I don't give a shit. Right. And I'm going to do this. You have no perception of not liking that person. Now suddenly you're working the character the way it's supposed to be. The person that's the character, yeah, you're a pain in my ass. However, the character, no, she's not. I'm going to have sex with her. I'm going to take her to bed. I'm going to have a great time. Right. So there's a difference of, of, of perception, and that's all we've got to understand. We've got to get, you know? Right. Um, I, you know, I just... I love what I do and I do what I love. It's that simple. And I, I adore getting involved in characters. And even when I play a good guy, I have a habit of, of dissecting him to a point of where I can find something bad about him that I can put into the character. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't to get to that. You know, when, when you worked on commando, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was one of the hugest stars at the time. And Alyssa Milano was actually one of the biggest TV star stars at the time as well. Uh, you know, uh, how, how was that working on that set? And, and did you still have character analytics on, on that character of Bennett? Oh yeah. I knew who Bennett was. Mm. Uh, the funny thing was that um, I actually was cast after the film had started filming um, because the character. Oh they really? Had, yeah. It, it didn't work out the way they wanted it. Don't ask me why, how, when or where, because I don't know. Um, can you hang on one? Sure. Um, no, you don't have to. I'm going to do this while I'm. I got to find something for my wife. Um, hang on one sec. Don't worry about it. Um, sorry, mate. Um, don't worry about it. So, so, uh, yeah, I, um, I, I, I never uh, had any conceptions of what I, I actually didn't know who Arnold Schwarzenegger was. In fact, the funny thing was I couldn't even say his name. Um, wow. I, I I could never pronounce it. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger. What? And it was like, oh, God. <laughs> and, um, you know, they flew me in and they put me on the set the, the next morning. So I had like 10 or 12 hours on a plane, about three or four hours sleep, Costume fittings with clothes that really didn't fit that they tried to make as best they could fit me. Right. And shave my beard off, cut my hair, do all that kind of stuff. Then I was on you, the were hu- you were huge in that film. Yeah, I was a football player. Um, so, uh, and the funny thing was, is that uh, the first thing we did was the scene where Arnold is tied to the table and I've got the knife at his throat and I'm saying to him if I had my way I would have cut your throat right and 
we were doing all the rehearsals and I was just very quiet, which I still am, as you're probably aware. I, I just do the rehearsals and watch what's going on and figure out yes, what sir. I'm going to do. And uh, I was doing that and I was very quiet. And Arnold apparently called Joel Silver over and told Joel Silver he didn't think it was going to work because I was kind of a pussy. You know, he needed someone that was macho, you know, like it was Arnold and then it needed to be this. And And Joel was like, well, you know, let's let's shoot this scene. If it doesn't work, then we'll close down and re- recast. And so Arnold sort of like, all right, let's do it. So, of course, the minute they say action, I'm doing my job. Because to me, when I'm rehearsing, I'm trying to figure out where everything is and where the actors are, and what. And I'm not going to to uh, be doing a hundred percent of what I'm going to do. So as soon as they right. say action, of course, I am. I am I'm Bennett. I'm up his ass and down his throat. And I got that knife halfway through to the back of the skull. <laughs> did the even though it's a rubber knife and we did the scene and it was over and and uh, uh Joel walked back over to Arnold and he said, uh, So are we gonna go with it or are we gonna close down? And Arnold just looked at Joel and he went, Never give him a real knife And that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was over and then we became, yeah we became real friends as arnold said in an interview he said he's scary because you can stand talking to him having a cup of coffee and he will be talking about the football about his girlfriend asking you about your family everything's fine the actor the director will say action and he's trying to kill you and he's right. dead serious and he said he is a scary mother and that's basically, you know, that's the way it is. That's the way I do it. Um, I don't well, he wanted that character to be that way. He got it. Well, he got it. And we had a lot of fun. Um, and I enjoyed it immensely. I mean, he was great to work. He's like a big kid. Him and Mel, they're both like big kids in a candy store. They're always telling jokes or pulling pranks or doing something. Um they just, they're always having fun, uh, which is really cool. Um, but uh, I enjoyed working with him. He was easy to work with. He was a nice guy to be around. Um, probably got sick of his entourage because they were always in the road when I was trying to talk to him. Um, but, you know, apart from all the crap, he was a nice guy. And uh, I enjoyed, I think... And I can seriously say this, I've done now, which I believe I just finished my 296th film. Um, wow. If I'm, if I'm adding correctly. In all of those films and in everything that I have done, I can say without a regret, there have been two people out of all of that that I would never work with again. And one director I would never work with again out of all of that. So I think that I have been incredibly lucky or people just react to me a different way. And I get to have a great time while I'm filming. Um, And directors are really easy to get along with. Um, I must admit that at this stage of my life and my career, even though I'm working more now than I've ever worked in my life, which is really ridiculous, by the way. Um, <laughs> I get I get away with a lot. You know, people just 
virtually they put me on the set and they go, it's like having a trained dog. Right. Fetch, you know, like, go fetch. <laughs> Do your thing. Um, and because people have kind of, I guess, got to that point where they, they know that they're going to get what they want. Just let me go do it. Right. Without, um, without, without saying any names, Vern, without saying any names, what was it about that one director that it made you not want to work with them ever again? Well, number one, he wasn't American. He was uh, South African. And he had an attitude that actors were beneath him and he would never talk to us if he, he talked through the first assistant director. What? And Yeah. And I just, uh, 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 about four times I've walked off. I've never walked off a set in my life, ever right. in my life. Right. I've never walked off that set four times. I what a horse's I, ass. It was, just, it was beyond my, my, I just was like, I do not believe this this person right. was doing this crap. And then the right. other thing he would do without asking, I don't think that I am somebody special. All I think is that I'm a human being who deserves respect. And if I'm right. working on a set, I'm half naked, and the girl I'm working with is half naked, and you want to bring all your friends to watch, you ask me first. You don't just turn up with six people who all stand around and gawk while we're doing a love scene. That That's is weird. Piss off the actors. Yeah. You know? I've never um, seen that before. That was- usually, usually they're isolated sets when those things happen. Yeah. But that was the big one that, that sent me to leaving and going home before the film was finished. They had to drag me back kicking and screaming. Um, wow. And it, it's just, you know, I have very few wants when I work. Hmm. Um, I'm really easy to get along with. He's probably one of the easier actors to get along with. I really, You're I, a very I, easy I, person to get along with, a very easy person. I just pride myself with being able to get along with everybody and to do my job. And that's it. Yeah. I'm there. I'm paid. You, you joke. You have a good time. You're always ready. You always know your lines. You always know your character analytics. You, you, you know, there, there's, there, I don't, I don't think there anybody could ever have a complaint about you. I just enjoy myself. I have fun. I'm just too dumb to have nothing but fun. Um, <laughs> I just, I you know I get out there and and what's even more ridiculous is is you know Grace and I were talking the other day is that now I keep winning these awards and it's like all my life I've worked to this point and suddenly right. I'm I'm winning all these best actor best um, uh, best producer best something and I I think. Dear God, you know, I've done nothing different that I'm aware right. of right. to what I've done most of my career. But I right. think what the one thing is that now the the people around me react to me in a different way. Right. And it, the audience is caught up to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I keep getting, you know, these awards for things. And I don't get me wrong. I think it's wonderful. I am extraordinarily yeah. proud the fact that I win these awards and I love the fact that the, the, the awards I get are from people coming to see or, or watching the film or being at a festival where the film is playing and voting right. on it. Right. So I'm incredibly proud of the fact that these people 
um, think that much of me and of my ability to to give me an award. But right. it, it, it's just that that now, when I'm having so much fun in my life, um, and it's funny that I got to this stage with. You know, I haven't always been like this, by the way. I, I had a hmm. Mel Gibson problem. One stage was that I went from being nobody to being extraordinarily successful very fast. Right. And there was no break in between where where I had, and I didn't have people around me who were saying, you know, settle down, settle down, don't be a dipshit. Right. So I ran wild. And I did very much the same kind of things Um I was drinking, and I don't drink, by the way. I can't stand alcohol. Um, right. And I was speeding, and, and I had a Corvette, and I was driving it like an idiot. And and I was uh, being very, very disingenuous to women, um, something mm. that I am not proud of in the least. Um, and uh, I, I got to the point of where I just stopped and decided mm. that I didn't want to do it anymore. I just yeah. didn't want to do it. I just pulled my put my head in the sand and went, nope, I'm I'm over it. I'm out of here. It's done. I'm sick of it. I don't want to be this person, this person I hate. Right. And the funny thing was, I always remember standing in front of a, a mirror shaving one morning and I could hear my grandfather, who was my biggest influence, just saying to me that, um, saying that always remember that on your way up, be kind to the people you pass because on your way down, they're the ones that will have joy in kicking your ass. And right. that had been the, the, the fact of, of what had happened to me is that I had been very disingenuous to people, regardless of the sex, male, female, black, right. white, green, purple. It didn't matter. I had just been an ass. Right. And um, so much in, in treating people badly, just in, in respect of, of ignoring people, just not hmm. treating them. That was not um, respecting them. No, not respecting people. So, um, and I suddenly dawned on me that this is what my grandfather had always said to me: one day you're going to regret the things you've done because they come back to haunt you. It's karma, right. you know, what goes what comes around. And I was right. reaping the rewards. Of and um, what I, I at, at that precise moment in my life, I went, you know what? From this moment on, I don't give a fuck. I don't right. care anymore about trying to be what everybody wants me to be. All I care right. about is being true to who I am and treating right. people the way I want to be treated. That's it. I don't care. I'll, right. do, I'll go to an audition. If I don't get it, I don't give a shit. I wasn't meant to have it. If I get right. it, that's wonderful. But I will do the same job regardless. I will go in there and do 110% period. Hmm. And that's what started. I just suddenly you grew. took a while. took about three years. And a manager who I'm still with, Joseph, to push, push, push. Believe me, I had screwed my way through the industry in your name. And nobody wanted to be around me. Um, huh. And I just went back to the drawing board and started to treat people with respect and um, honor the people of who they were. And from that moment on, everything started. It took three years, as I said, for things to come back and for people to start to hire me. And right. then it just, from that point, it just went and hasn't stopped since. And that's been 40-odd years. 
Hmm. It just it just kept going, and of course, now it's it's just wonderful. I have so many wonderful friends, you and and everybody that that's associated with you and the projects you do. And, and you're uh, wonderful. Brian. You're you're a wonderful human being. You know, I want to ask you a, a question because, you know, yeah. regardless of what you're saying, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I'm glad that you grew from that situation. I mean, you are always going to be an amazing human being in my mind and, and I thank you for sharing that experience with us but I, I want you to share something about your grandfather what, what was it about what was your grandfather like because you say that he was a huge inspiration to you him and my mother you know I'll hmm. let you in the little secret so that we sure. can understand where I'm coming from my heritage is very simple I always remember about three years before my mother passed, I had gone home uh, with Grace were uh, in Australia and I was standing in front of the mantelpiece. And I've always been very facetious. My mother and I have had more of a, of a best friend relationship rather than a mother-son. She's always right. been my best friend. We've always been extraordinarily close. And... Um, I always remember standing at the thing and there was two picture frames on the, the thing and they had uh, pictures of Aboriginals and one was a, a, a full cast Aboriginal lady, very pretty lady. And the other one was of a very, very good looking man who was obviously um, part white. And right. I was just sort of standing looking at them and I was being very facetious and I said to my mother, did the, uh, did the Aboriginals come with the frames? And she walked over and she said, I said, what? And I said, the pictures of the Aboriginals, they come with the frames when you bought the frames. And she hit me. So my mother never hit me. She hit wow. me up the side of the head. I thought my head was going to ring until the day I died. <laughs> and she just looked at me and she said, you are such an ignorant little shit. And I went, um, okay, what did I do? Right. She said, you have no idea, do you? And I went, Okay, um, you got me. No, I don't. What? And she said, this lady is your great-grandmother, and this is your grandfather Ooh. who you grew up And I went, what? And she went, and I looked at my mother, and she said, yes. Before I said a word, she said, yes. And then I went, and she said, and so are you. And I went, but, and she went, remember when you had that car accident, you got your face all smashed? And I said, yeah. She said, you've always been, because my, my birth father was, um, and his side of, the fa of, of his family was uh, Welsh and French. Okay. They're very white, you know, very pale skin. Right. Um, so I had got that pale, very pale skin, but I still had very um, Aboriginal features. My nose was still very Aboriginal, very wide, and my, my uh the, the bones in my cheeks are very high. I have very high cheekbones. Right. Very, but when I had my face all smashed, because I looked white, they re-put me back together as a white person. As I like oh, my gosh. So basically, I got a white nose, and, and they couldn't do anything about my cheekbones, but of course, I didn't know what that was. Um, right. I got a white nose, and um, 
And that was it. I was white, basically. And it never, ever, and I grew up with this man and it never dawned on me. What I, and I was talking to my mother about, I said, you know what? I always used to think that granddad had the most amazing tan because he would go literally really oh. black in summer. And right. I thought he had this amazing tan. And my mother was the same. She'd go out in the sun. She could, and I could, I would go out in the sun and I would burn. Right, and so I I did not. See, so you were you were unintentional. You were unintentionally being disrespectful towards your own family. Yes, because of ignorance. And yeah. Always remember, my grandfather was probably one of the most intelligent people that I knew. Not because he had all this wonderful. Um, uh, technical knowledge, but because he had all this wisdom. He had this wisdom about him that if you asked him a question, my, my grandfather had a habit of never answering questions. He actually <laughs> answered the question in a way that made you answer it for yourself. Right. And I always remember when I was around 20 years old, I had, uh, I, uh, I know, I think I was 21, 22, no, 20, yeah, probably around 20, 19, 20. I had finished, um, I had finished all of my college and everything, and um, I was working before I went to university. And I had a job as an engineer, but not in, a, in, in respect to being an engineer in a company. It was an engineer in respect to telling people how to fix problems that they were having within the engineering in their company. And I was talking to my grandfather before I started, and I said, you know what, Pops, I can't do this. I can't walk into a, a, a company where there's a guy standing in front of me who's been doing his job for 45 years and tell him he's doing it wrong. And I'm, what, 20 years old? I mean, that's just ridiculous. I, I, I can't do that. And he said, no, you can't. Do that, they're going to throw your butt straight out of the building. And I said, right. I know, but I have to do the job. And he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, I have no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of ringing up tomorrow and, and quitting. And he said, oh, that's cool. That's the way to do it. Just quit. Right. Yep. That'll get you out of it. And <laughs> I said, well, don't know what I can do, what, how I can make this work. And he said, well, you know. You're a smart boy. You'll figure it out. He said, you know, look at it this way. You come into a building, the guy that's standing in front of you has had 45 years working here doing this job. You walk through that door and you've probably figured out as you walk through the door every problem that he has. Now, what are you going to do? You can't tell him because if you do, He's going to think you're an arrogant little son of a bitch, and that's the last time you'll ever see him. And I said, right. I know. He said, so what do you think? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I should ask him what he thinks. And he said, that would be a good start. And he said, so when you ask him what he thinks, he's going to tell you what he thinks. He's going to stand there, and with his chest puffed out, he's going to tell you everything that he knows from 45 years of working there. Right. 90% of it probably total crap for what you're trying to fix, but 10% of it is going to help you. So 
So when he finishes, what you do is you use that 10%. You stand there and you look him in the eye and you go, you know what? I'm glad I talked to you because I had no idea how we could fix it. However, you just gave me an idea. Now you tell him, using what he told you, what you've been taught. Right. You tell the man how to fix his problems. You tell him everything that will fix his problem. And then you say to him, so what do you think? Do you think that'll work? He's going to say, you know what? Let's give it a go. I'm sure it will. Hmm. When you leave that building, he's going to tell his superior, he's a nice kid. Give him 10 years. He'll understand what he's doing and he'll be a great kid. You haven't (laughs) taken away his pride. You haven't made him feel like he's nobody. You've made him feel like his job is worthwhile, and that's all you have to do. And you know right. what? That's what stuck with me all my life, was that's the simplicity of what he said to me. Because if you think about it, we all have a habit of belittling people without realizing it. We've got to understand right. that no matter what that person's job is, they're proud of it. I don't care if he's the cleaner. He cleans your desk or he cleans the floor. He's proud of the fact that he can make that floor shine. You have no right to take that pride away from him. You should be the one saying, wow, man, how do you get this floor so shiny? Because Mm -hmm. you have a new product that you want to get him to use on the floor, but you don't want to go in and say, what you're using is crap, use this. So he will tell you, and then you'll tell him what you think, and then between you, you'll come up and he will use your product. Right. But he'll still think he's the greatest floor shiner in the world. Right. And that's what it's about. It's about nothing else. In On a set, that's how you treat your co-stars. That's how you treat everybody in the crew. You give them the respect they deserve. If you think mm. you know better, good for you. But make sure that you understand that it's their job, not yours, and you have to respect that. Hmm. That's... It's tough. Tell me, tell, that's what he taught me. You know, that's that's incredible information for somebody to teach you that because it translates over to acting so well and to directing so well. Did did you care? Do you still carry that on to, to today? Yep. Is it, is, it, is it? Do you think about that all the time? I. I think when I'm approaching people, I always think about the fact that there is no way I'm going to belittle that person. I'm right. going to treat them with respect. And and, um, and I always treat the, the actors I'm with uh, as if they're better than I am. Because, you know what? Everybody has something that you can learn from. Right. And the minute you think you can't learn from somebody... Then, then it's over, dude, because yeah, you're screwed, yeah. You should just get the hell out of Dodge. While Absolutely. you're looking at people, no matter who they are, from the one-liner to your co-star or your star, they have something to teach you. And you right. should be grateful for what they let you watch. I always remember that when I first started directing, I had a DP who was referred to as God in the business. He was, his name was Volk Moll. He was just the most amazing, amazing DP, just amazing. And people would, would kill to be.
become his assistant because when you were an assistant with Bulk Mog, you learned everything because Bulk's theory on life was simple. Pass it forward. He had been trained by a brilliant man and it was now his obligation to train other people, to give them his knowledge, to show them what he knew. That's incredible. That's what my whole thing is, is to Hmm. show people what I do, to give them the knowledge of God. Let them see how it works. Not to be an ass and say, hey, you know what, you're not doing that right. Don't don't get me wrong, a couple of times in my career, I've stood people up against the wall and said, seriously, you hit me one more time, I'm going to knock you out, you son of a bitch. Very, very few and far between. Right. But 90% of the time, it's it's helping. I always remember on the set of um, the TV series, one of the kids had to turn into the camera and deliver a line, and he couldn't get it right. He, he couldn't right. turn into the camera. And no one was telling him, and he was getting really frustrated. And finally, I said to the director, I said, you mind if I just have a word with him for a sec? And he went, whatever. And I just walked over to him, and I said, look, just plant your your uh, left foot and then turn backwards on your – just plant your left foot, don't move it, and just swing your body around so you're out of the camera. And when right. they say action, bring your body around level and never move that that left foot and you'll be dead center of the camera and he went oh first time cut print moving on nice because that's all it took was to be able to just go over and say you're not doing anything wrong you're just not having anyone tell you the dynamics of how to make it work right and that's that's the whole point is that's our obligation is to be able to say to people you know what, we've been in this business for a long time, you and me, we've been in this business for a long time, and all the people we work with, Sean, and all the other people we work with, Brian, we've all been in this business a long time. It's an obligation that we have is to share the knowledge and what we've picked up to people who are coming up in the business, people that have the respect for the business. And I'm not talking about these little twits, who think that being an actor is gives you the right to be a total little diva and a total little ass and yelling right. at people and, and stand, sit in your trailer for two days. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking right. about the people who actually want to do the job, who actually want to be part of this community that we are. Right. And our obligation to them is to make sure that they get all the knowledge that we have because if we go back in history, and we all forget history, it amazes me. I always right. say that America is the Roman Empire. Um, we always forget history. We don't read it. <clears throat> we don't study it. We don't think about it. But if you go back in history, the older people in the village were the ones who taught the children. Because right. why? Because the old people had all the knowledge. They mm. had lived through it. They had done it. And they had an obligation to teach the young, to show them how to be smart, how to do it, how to collect the right things, how to not get eaten by that very large animal out there with big teeth. 
Right. They had an obligation to do that, and that's what they did. The, the children were all schooled. By, we forget that today. We ignored right. the older people, the ones with the smarts. We ignore them. You know, they know more about it than we'll ever learn. And <laughs> sometimes you just sit down and listen to them talk. I used to love it, and I still do. If I'm on the set with, with right. older actors, and, and they want to sit down and, and talk about what they've done and their stories and everything, I'll sit and listen to them for as long as they want to tell them. I actually do the same thing. People often say to me, I could sit and listen to you for, for hours just talking about your career and what you've done and where you're going right. and, and what your life has been. Because that's all experiences that I've had and I'm proud of them and I'm, I want to share them with people. I want people to understand that they can do it. You can right. be who I am. I'm nobody special. I get up in the morning, I put my pants on the same way. I run from the bed to the bathroom because I'm desperate to pee. I'm no different to anybody else. It's like, you know, I have the same foibles, the same things. I get people. Let me let me ask you, Vern. You know, when you, you worked on Power Rangers, which is which is a youth based filming. Were you able to go on onto that onto that screening right there and into your your knowledge on on this crew, or did they respect you as that person? How how did that work out for you? Um, well, I did the same thing as I always do. I knew who who uh, the character was when they hmm. finally said it was. I I knew exactly who he was. I, I right. Pulled apart, dissected him, made him who he was. He had he had more levels than, and this is one of the nice things I get from the kids. The kids come up and they just say, you know, he, the character was amazing. Um, he just was one of the awesome. best villains on the on the thing because he was. And that's hard. That's hard to do. It's really hard to make a nice villain or or a really great villain. And and you know what? To me, he wasn't just a nice villain. He was. A villain that had very, very different levels to him. He loved his daughter above all things. He he had a, a joy about being able to fight with the the Rangers and and as they wrote, if you've watched the series or any of the series, they wrote all these episodes yeah. where where the Pink Ranger and I were always matched up because there was a little right. thing between. And that became the thing because it started off with the fact that that Aaron and I clicked when we first met, and so it started off right in the first episode in the in the bus when I'm being transported to jail. It started mm. right there when I look at her and just just raise one eyebrow and grin when I tell her that you should be very careful what you wish for, and it. <laughs> Right there, and and they 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 clicked on it. All of the writers, and they started writing this stuff in for me and Aaron. The other thing I loved was that it became this thing. There was the Power Rangers would never usually had actors. It was new people all the time. Right. And they had two in that series. They had myself, and they had the Red Ranger's father, who was a very prominent actor. His father was a huge. Um, television actor as well and I can't think of his name and he passed away a few years ago and I loved him 
Um, but they had two actors. And so the, 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 the kids, and I always used to say this, all it was, this whole series was a pissing competition. <laughs> they would try to pluck the wall higher than I could. And they would go right. out there, man, crucify me. And it was always, I had to be on my best game. I couldn't walk mm. out there and go, what? You're all nobodies. I don't really give a shit. I'm not going to act today. I had right. to go out there and bring it on, you little sons of bitches. Bring it on. <laughs> and they would. I mean, they brought it on every time. And that's what I think made it so successful, that series, was that right. they all got into it. And I had a, a ball doing it. And to me, acting's acting. I don't care right. whether it's a cute show or did, did they amazing. did they under, did they understand what you were doing? Could, could they could they comprehend? I mean, they weren't that young, but could they comprehend like how experienced you were as an actor? Oh, they all knew. They figured it out real quick, and they all would ask questions, and they would all take away from what I was doing. They nice. became me. They all watched what I did, and um, which was it was another way of teaching the next generation. Right. Being there, doing my job, having them uh, watch, listen, and learn. And they were all wonderful. Everyone, and, and the funny thing about this is, is that of all the series of Power Rangers that's been done, Time Force is the only one where the whole cast has stayed together. Hmm. Every one of us in the cast knows, still knows each other. We still contact each other. We're still really? in touch with each other. If there's ever a convention where they have time force, we all go. We're all there because we all love each other. We all had such a love, a, a great time doing the show. Right. You see, on other there'll be two or three people because yeah, really exactly. Um, we didn't have that. We all got along. Wow. We wow. That's that's a blessing. That's a real blessing. It was a ball. Nice. But so what, what do you direct? It, it, go ahead. Yep. No, no go ahead. I, I would just say I love what I do. And, you know, I'm blessed every morning when I get out of bed and do it. Now, you have, you have directing projects that are coming up right now, don't you? So what, what are yep. these directing projects you're working on right now? Uh, I'm working on the series. I'm directing part of the series, which is called... Um, Banged. It's a uh, vampire series with a very big twist, uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun. But all, we, nice. all we've done is we've put together the um, pitch package, which is which is uh, ten minutes of the first eight episodes, ten minutes of each episode, and I directed um, part of that. Um, I co-directed a horror film called SOS. I've got a film that I wrote called Circle Man, which is a, mother, a father and daughter um, relationship set within the um, confines of um, uh, mixed martial arts, the same thing as they have on TV where they, you know, they box, they, they kickbox, they do the whole, all, nice. all in the same. Circle um, Man. Um, it's called Circle Man, yep. Because uh, it's a circle that they fight in, a, a cage. Um, right. And uh, I've got that. Um, I'm directing a uh, a beautiful little film called The Promise. 
which is really, I'm really, really looking forward to doing that uh, when it comes up. And I've got uh, a couple of projects that I'm directing with um, Brian. Nice. Uh, so, uh, you know, Brian and I are working on a lot of stuff. We've got a, a wonderful project coming up called Southern Hard, which is about a, um, a southern colonel in the uh, North and South War who gets into a fight with the North back near his, pro- his, his plantation and gets shot and manages to escape into a cave that he remembers playing in with a young uh, African-American uh, girl who was a slave, who was virtually his slave. And um, he ends up being trapped in this cave with her. And she's nice. now an adult, and she's a, she's fled from the pro, from the farm. She's a a runaway, but she considers herself to be a free woman. And that's just this whole. It's a short. It's twenty five minutes short. But so you're doing a, a civil war film, civil war film based on the underground railroad uh, of an uh, African American woman who's running away. That, that's inc- what's yep. the name of the film? It's called Southern Hard. Southern Hard. That's the way, yeah, that's the way that in my dialogue I say when I was brought up, my father brought me up Southern Hard. <laughs> that, that what a great title. For um, people, that, you know, the, the son that was brought up to be the the head of the family and owned the slaves because they were Southern yeah. Hard. Sure. Um, there's that, which I'm doing with... Um, Brian, there's a wonderful Western, which we've already done a 25-minute pitch, which has been accepted, uh, which is called Death at Sunrise, which I'll be doing, which uh, is just such a cool, cool film. Brian's directing nice. that one. He's also directing Southern Heart. I'll be directing some of Southern Heart. There's parts of Southern Heart he wants me to direct. But all the stuff in the cave, there's a lot of stuff of when I'm young and when she's young that, that happens and I'll be directing all that. Um, nice. But we work together. We direct very much the same way, which is really cool because you can't mm. tell the difference between us when, when you uh, see what we're doing if we're directing together. Right. And there's a, a couple of, there's a, I believe I'm doing a film uh, I've got three films to do in Australia if this virus ever ends. They've all been cancelled. I was supposed to be in Australia at the moment yeah. uh, filming with a couple of big stars. And then I've got another one after that. And there's uh, my most favourite film is being put together and funded at the moment. Um, I did a film called... Um, it's a film noir, bleh, film noir called Trouble Is My Business. Sure. Uh, and an amazing uh, director, writer, actor, Tom Conkle, who's just amazing. Um, and he said to me on set, said, what's, what's three films that you would like to do before you finish your career? And I said, oh. And I said, well, I would love to play uh, the pirate in Treasure Island, and I would like to play the captain in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and I would like to do a real vampire movie where they stick to the book and he's not 12 years old, he's an old man. And um, he said, oh, and that was there you go. it. 
nothing else. And then about three months ago, he sent me this whole package on a film called Island in the Sky. In the Stars. Sorry, my wife's yelling at me. (laughs) I love Grace. I really love Grace. It was called called Island in the Stars, and it's basically... (laughs) A modern version of Treasure Island where I play the pirate and um, we have all the characters and it's all set with spaceships, but they're sailing ships like they have sails, the uh, wind sails in the in the, uh, the ones that, say, you know, how they put sails on every ship sure. to sail sure. through the, through the uh, cosmos. They have those kind of ships, and they're looking. The treasure they're looking for is the key to saving humanity. Right. And uh, I want to get it. Everybody else wants to get it. And, of course, the young, and it's not a young boy in this one. It's a young girl. Um, And I befriend her, and I become sort of, you're never quite sure if I'm the good guy or the bad guy, because I keep splitting my allegiances. If the bad guys look like they're winning, I'm suddenly a bad guy. If the good guys look like they're winning. (laughs) Right. Uh, It's it's kind of a lot of fun, but um, that's to be done. And uh, uh, they've written it, and it's wonderful. And they're they're, um, getting that set up to shoot in Australia. So. And I have another one from a good friend of mine, um, who I've, I've just won an I just won an award. Oh, I just won an award for um, um, "Trouble Is My Business," which amazed me. And hmm. um, I won an award for Travis. Travis, a friend, young friend of mine, who is an Australian director, writer, and nice. he's uh, doing film over there, uh, which he wants me to do. Uh, with Con- Costas Mandalore and Costas and I have wanted to work together again. We did a film together. Right. We've been wanting to together again for Yonks. And so I'll be getting my chance when all this is over to work with him in a film. Let, let me, um, let me ask you a question here. Let me ask you a question before we, you know, we're, we're running out of time real quick. We've, we've hit the two, two hour section here, but you know, let's just say that there is, let me give you a hypothetical. There, there is a kid in Australia right now that has seen your movies, seen your career, loves you to death, wants to come out to America, wants to make something of himself. What, what advice do you have for that, for that kid of, of how to become something that you would be proud of? Well, I always say the same thing uh, to people. I say, this business is probably the hardest business in the world to be in. There is more heartbreak than in any other business known. You will have days where you are on top of the world, days where you are on the bottom of the world. There's never a middle ground. There's always a high or a low, and you have to learn mm. to be able to temper both of those feelings, the highs and the lows, and create your own gray area where you can exist and never, ever feel that people owe you anything because they don't. Always right. Be smart enough to do schooling. Learn your job. 
no matter what it is, if it's acting, if it's behind the camera, it doesn't matter. Learn what you're going to do. Become good at it. Practice. Go and get jobs. I started off as an extra, for goodness sake. I don't recommend that people go out and become extras. I recommend that people take small parts in small films to learn what it's all about. Because guess what? When you work on a low-budget film, you have to work. Right. You don't get the luxury of being able to sit in your trailer all day while somebody sets up the shot. Your ass right. is on the line every minute of every day when you're there. And do as many of those as you can do. Get to know what your job is. And right. each time, improving. It's like if you buy, if you can't afford to buy a Mercedes Benz, buy a clunker. And then when you've got enough money, trade the clunker in and get a better car. And then get a better car. And then get a better right. car. And then, oh gosh, guess what? I can now afford to get a Mercedes Benz. Right. It's no different. Start the same way. Learn. Move up a scale. Learn. Move up a scale. People are right. watching what you're doing. And never go onto a set and go, oh, this is just a low budget shit movie. I'm not going to do anything. Right. You go onto a set and you go, I'm on a movie set. I am doing my job. I am putting 150% into I. No matter what film I do, I don't give a, a, a crying, flying gooby. Whether right. it's a $100 million budget or a $100 budget. If I've agreed to do your film, guess what? I put 150% into what I do. I come out there prepared. I know what I'm doing. And I will deliver the character that you want. I don't care what your budget is. I will make it work. That's what you have to do because if you do that, people watch you and someone on that said, you know, 70% of my work is from people I've worked with. They will tell a director. They're, they're going onto a film. I go, hey, have you ever considered Vernon for this film? Oh, my God, you know him? I get another role from someone. <laughs> right. People like working with me. They like being around because I put in the effort. They do. Yeah. You know, you're not owed anything. You're nobody special. You're nobody different. Right. Just do your job. Treat people with respect. People will treat you with respect and do your job. And then people will love you for it. Be available, be on, on tap, be right there and do it. And you've got no problems. You will become somebody special. And guess what? I'll be proud to work with you. Right. Vern, how could people get in touch with you? How could they, like internet-wise, like Facebook, Instagram, how could how could people get in touch with you and see your stuff? Well, as long as they don't want to try to screw me over, um, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, they can come on to my. I'm all over. Uh, well, I'm on everything on Facebook. There's a. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on. Uh, if you go on to um, YouTube, you can find so much stuff on me. Just put my name in, sure. and it will bring up so much stuff uh, that I've done. So much stuff that I'm in. Um, all the things, the films and stuff that are out there. 
Um, there's you can contact me um, uh, on my Facebook. You can contact me. Just go on to um, uh, what is it? Ver- Vernon G. Wells. Yeah. Vernon G. Wells. Yep. And leave me a message. Message me. I'll contact. I'll get back to you. Yeah, I know. And then you have an Instagram account as well, Vernon G. Wells as well, right? Yep. I have Instagram. I have, well, I I have somebody doing all of that because you know what? I'm totally computer illiterate. I have this big thing. I switch my computer on. If the screen comes up with something on it, I think I'm brilliant. If it doesn't, (laughs) I go and she comes and does it. Because I'm totally useless. Truly, I... I may be able to, I always say to people, I'm an actor, I'm not intelligent. Come on, give me a break. Yeah. Well, Vernon, you know, not only was I blessed in my life to work with, with one of my idols, uh, but uh, I, I'm also blessed to call on my friend. You were one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met in my life. And I love you to death. I, thank you for being on the show. And please Please tell Grace that I love her as well. I, I every time I hear Grace's voice, I I, I I always think about her. She's a wonderful human being. You both are wonderful human beings, and uh, I've been so blessed to have you in my life. So thank you so much. I'm gonna... so, so, oh. so you love him. Oh wait, hang on. Wait, hang on. One second. I love you. Thank I love you, Grace. I love you, Grace. You're. <laughs> You're the best. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, I had to let you speak because she's in the other room. We have our office at home, so. Uh, she's an angel. She's, she really is an angel. She's she's very sweet. As being a Buddhist as, as well as I am, you know, being able to talk to her, she's very sweet and she's very easy to talk to you, very, very kind, very generous. And just like yourself, very kind, very generous with your time. And uh, I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for me, my friend. No, don't be silly. It's my pleasure. I've done nothing that, that I consider to be out of out of the norm. I'm just I'm just happy to have done it and happy to have worked with you. And, and it's been a pleasure being on the show. I just love just be, talking to you. Just, just having being part of my life and just having you being part of my existence has been, has been an honor and a pleasure. And, and uh, I can't tell you how, how great it feels to have written for you and, and for you to have acted in something I've done and, and to hear you talk and to, uh, and to have my experience with you. It's just, it's just incredible. So thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for being on the show. I really, I greatly appreciate it. Don't be silly. My pleasure. I'm, uh, I've enjoyed it. And um, love it with you guys. Thank you, Vern. We're gonna we're gonna sign off. That's Vernon G. Wells, the incredible human being. Thank you, my friend, and have a great day. Thank you, you too, and be safe. You be safe, my as well, and take care of your family, please. Uh, we're we're making sure that we uh, are very very careful with what we do. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Will do. I'll see you on the other side, Steve. And say, yeah, if so- you're talking to um, Sean or anybody, please give them my best. Well, Sean knows I'm on the radio with you right now. We've been texting the entire time. <laughs> oh, 
Well, Kevin, um, I think about all of you often, and um, please be well and please be safe. Oh, we, we, we love you very much, and we were, he was very happy to see you on the show, and, and we always think about you, and we, we love you so much. Well, I'm glad, and he has, he's becoming he's, – he's one of those people that always was going to be somebody, and now he's becoming That's somebody, right. and you yourself, you're doing the same. It's, it's, I That's think right. it's wonderful that the people around me that succeed and move on, I love. I think that it's just – that's what it's all about. Well, I'm putting the clap track on you right now because we're out of time, but, you know, we wouldn't have been anything without the help of somebody like yourself, by the way, because people like you built us up, period. Well, my pleasure, and you know what? You can only help those that want to be helped, and that's the way it is, and, you know, I'm quite more than happy to help anybody that wants to be helped or wants to... uh, Join in the jollies, as I say. It's uh, it's fun. But have a good one, my friend. Stay safe. Uh, keep your family safe. And all yes. of our friends, I hope that every one of them stays safe. And, you know, this too shall pass. And we <laughs> will come out better human beings for it. That's right. God bless you, my friend. Have a great day. As Vernon Thank G. You. Wells. All right, boys and girls, I, was, I wasn't joking before. You know, Vernon Wells is, is one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met in my entire life. And as we come to a close here, I've been really the most blessed human being to know him, to have worked for him, worked with him, to have written with him, written for him. It was an incredible experience. I literally wrote what I needed to write for him in three minutes. That's how inspired I was. You heard a lot of excellent stories of how to become a great actor or a great director or a great person from Vernon. You heard a lot of things on, on mistakes that he made that made him who he was. His inspirations, like his grandfather and his mother. The director of of Mad Max, George Miller, was a great inspiration to him as well. I've known him for a little bit of time. Well, a lot amount of time. And I love him. And he's a great human being. You hear him talk about character analytics and understanding the character. It's incredible. It goes to show you a lot of times that you don't need to go to acting school to understand a lot of these things. Thank you, Vern, for being on the show today. We are blessed to have had you on the show. We're blessed to have you in our lives. What an incredible human being. What a wonderful human being. Vernon Wells on Facebook, Instagram. Look him up on YouTube. You can watch all of his stuff. 
And to all of you, thank you very much for listening today. Thank you for listening to Vern. Thank you for taking his advice. Listening to his stories. This has been Cinema Files Radio. This is your host, Steve Pisa. Thank you for being part of our lives. Thank you for listening in. Remember, this is a time for reflection and love. For forgiveness. Introspection. Reaching out to people. Finding the value of life. And love. Thank you, all of you. It's my blessing to be part of your life. Have yourself a great day. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.